the technology um, shifts the human experience. And then uh, the, the ways in which we make meaning is um, actually then instilled back into the further technological innovation that takes place. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Jeremy Lint, who is the author of several books, including The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, and his more recent book, The Web of Meaning integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. Importantly, a great deal of Jeremy's work addresses many of the topics that are near and dear to our hearts at Singularity, one of which is a sustainable, connected, and prosperous future. However, Jeremy believes that our current approach and worldview are causing humans, and therefore the technology we create, to often lead us in the opposite direction, towards a world of disconnection, destruction, and exploitation. To help us navigate these potential futures, Jeremy provides us with some incredibly well-articulated insights and metaphors that help frame the options that exist before us. So without further ado, let's just jump into this wonderful conversation. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Jeremy Lent. Wonderful. Well, on, on that note, you know, one of the things that I've will say is a great starting point with you, which, you know, everyone loves a good biography to start with, but your, your about me says that you investigate the underlying causes of civilization's existential crisis and explores the pathways towards a life affirming future. That's a lot of wonderful words in a sentence, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what that really means in terms of what you do. Yeah, sure. Well, I think basically what informs that that statement is um, a recognition that I came to over a number of years as I as I kind of conducted my own personal like search for meaning or whatever, which is that um, what really drives the direction of history um, is not just uh, the you know rulers and the technologies and the um, uh, different forms of subsistence all that stuff, but actually what is driven um, by a sort of a cognitive aspect, which is really when is driven by the way in which a particular culture takes meaning from the universe. Um, and um, in, an, in an earlier book I wrote called The Patterning Instinct, which is basically like a history book, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning is the subtitle. It basically looks at how um, essentially uh, culture shapes values and those values are what shape history. And what's so important about that is that it's not just an academic reflection on the past, but by the same token, our values today will actually shape the future. And so we have to go beyond just looking at climate breakdown or even economic systems or uh, can technology be good or bad or in between whatever, but look at the way in which we actually um, find meaning in the universe and how that leads to our value system because those are the implicit things that really drive the direction we're going to go in yeah so bringing it to the present day then that brings us to your latest book that came out last year the web of meaning and that 
really seems to be focused on the conflict between two narratives right now, one of connectedness and one of disconnection. How are those narratives playing out right now? Yeah, well, um, right now, the narrative of disconnection, in my view, is far away the dominant narrative, so much so that most of us uh, just kind of growing up in uh, certainly in the global north today or pretty much any part of the world, just think that's the only narrative. There's not even a sense of um, choosing narratives or saying like, oh, yeah, I I often use the word uh, worldview because it's like, and, and that's kind of a nice way to look at it in the sense that um, it's a lens through which we see the world. Um, and the lens through which we see the world is um, so powerful, partly because most of us are not realizing it is a lens, just like we don't know that we our eye is a lens until some uh, um, you know, scientist explains that to us. We just think that's the way the world is. But of course, the only way in which we can make sense of the universe is by putting it into certain patterns of meaning within ourselves. Our dominant worldview basically says that everything is separate. Humans are separate from nature. We're even separate from each other, from ourselves, like our mind is separate from our body. We're separate from each other. And um, we've taken that so deeply that most people just feel, well, that is just the way the world is. And so a lot of my book is to show that actually, um, that is not just, not just that there's other ways of seeing things, but that what we think is the scientifically valid understanding of this worldview turns out to be misguided and outdated science itself. Do you think a lot of that dominance, uh, a lot of the dominance of that worldview has to do with the fact that technology has kind of made, um, you know, one narrative ubiquitous? I think of Alan Moore, he, he talked before about how in a podcast about him or in a a documentary about him once he said that advertisers get the whole world to have the same banal thoughts at the same time and it kind of makes me think about like social media in the news today it's like everyone has the same thought and as a social animal we all want to agree with the herd so do you think that's a little bit of what's going on with the relationship between culture and technology well i think that um there's like a self-reinforcing feedback loop Mm -hmm. between uh, culture and technology <clears throat> in the sense that um, to begin with, I don't think it's technology itself that has ever actually shaped the way we make meaning, but um, technology shapes the human experience all the way back from when uh, hunter, you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers first developed technologies <clears throat> in relation to the, and began to find themselves with power over other non-human beings and et cetera. But in all these cases, the technology and shifts the human experience. And then uh, the, the ways in which we make meaning is um, actually then instilled back into the further technological innovation that takes place. And of course, right now, technology has developed so much power over our day-to-day experience that that tends to um, feel like the most powerful force that we turn to to try to figure out how everything else and uh, can be changed and affected. But I think it's also just as important to look not just at technology itself, but the context in which it's developed. And oftentimes, and you know, we can maybe explore this more, but when I look at <clears throat> technology um, and is a technology good or bad, or how does it impact our, our sense of meaning making, I feel you cannot separate it from the context in which it's developed and 
manifested, which in our world today basically is global capitalism. Yeah. And what are some of the ways that you think that, I mean, let's just explore, I guess, some of the specifics of the disconnection. The, the One of the first ones I think you mentioned was the disconnection from nature. Can you touch on, on maybe that disconnect? Yes. Well, basically, there's layers of disconnection that has taken place over thousands of years and <clears throat> to get to where we are right now. Like you can look back into early history <clears throat> and um, or like when humans first evolved and we developed things like fire, we began to separate ourselves from the rest of nature right um, <clears throat> in those earliest times, even before we had language. With the rise of agriculture and sedentism, <clears throat> there was a big separation and we put up uh, put up fences and that was like what we grew and there was wild nature out there. But still at the deeper layers, there was a sense of humans being part of a spirit world that was everywhere around. And I think one of the biggest disconnects actually happened really with the rise of Western thought with the ancient Greeks. And then, um, and that got sort of uh, transmogrified if you will, into sort of Christianity. Um, and that's what, we, where, what we've inherited in the modern world is a sense of a deep separation between um, what is human and the rest of nature. And that was really encapsulated by Descartes um, who, <clears throat> and really right now, the modern worldview was founded in that scientific revolution in the 17th century. And when Descartes said, cogito ergo sumo, I think therefore I am, that had a profound effect because what he was basically saying is that um, our very human existence is a function of our thinking faculty. And not just um, any thinking faculty, it's the uniquely um, human way of conceptualizing and symbolizing about the world. And that, in Descartes' mind, was what connected us with divinity. And he kind of took the old uh, Christian notion of soul and renamed that mind, which is really where, where we've inherited that idea. But if you take that and think its implications, what it means is that those non-thinking, like non-human thinking creatures, like all other sentient beings around us, even our own bodies, are not, don't have a true existence. Where they, they're somehow, then they don't have that core value that we associate with that thinking capability. That's the core of the separation that really has just unfolded now the last few hundred years. And that creates a very antagonistic relationship then, right? Because that's where we see capitalism come in and kind of... Uh an exploitation of nature, really. Right, exactly. And above all, it's the notion of exploitation. Because if we really consider uh, ourselves as being the sole sort of source of value, um, and nature becomes really just a machine. In fact, Descartes was one of the first people to say explicitly, not that the idea of nature as a machine is like a, a, a neat metaphor or valuable, to, but he says that it is a machine. Um, and he, he actually even said, I don't see any distinction between those animals out there and the kind of machines that with cogs and wheels and all that stuff. He, and he famously, you, oh, sorry, I say he famously yeah. called them uh, beast machines, didn't he? Wasn't that, I um, think that, what was his quote? I, I think I, I think so. And, and also um, a, a gruesome element was that was because he thought they were machines, he was fine with supporting vivisection. So he'd like take dogs and wanted to figure out how that heart pump worked so he'd cut them open and even as they were squealing he'd say well don't worry about the squealing it's more it's just like the the sound that it makes just as if you're twanging um, a string on a violin or whatever so there was that horrible sense of this total separation 
um, of the actual sentience of nature. Um, and so um, as a result of that though, it becomes very, it just becomes logical to see nature as something to exploit. It's a resource to then maximize what we can for human um, optimization. And, uh, and of course, arising from that, that sense of exploitation comes the sense of uh, a, a humans seeing other people as, as basically resources too. So those who are non-white Christian uh, males essentially and coming from Europe from that period of time was seen really as part of nature. So they, they didn't get to be part of the society of thinking cogito ergo sum type beings and therefore were ripe for total exploitation too along with the rest of nature. Yeah, this reminds me, I, I wrote a quote down um, after reading some of your work that I'd love to share with you if, if you're okay with that. I think it, oh. so I, I don't know if you're familiar with Ishmael. I assume that you probably are the book. Yeah, yeah, I love that book. Yeah. But there's a quote, he says, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with people given a story to an act that puts them in accord with the world, they will live in accord with the world. But given a story to an act that puts them at odds with the world as yours does, they will live at odds with the world. Given a story to an act in which they are the lords of the world, they will act like lords of the world. And given a story to an act in which the world is a foe to be conquered, they will conquer it like a foe. And one day, inevitably, their foe will lie bleeding to death at their feet as the world is now. Mm. Does this feel like a lot of what you're really getting at with your work? Very much so. And in fact, yeah, I read um, that wonderful book, Ishmael, um, quite early in my own research program many years ago. And I think it really affected me in my own understanding of um, trying to make sense of how we got to where we are right now. And so, yes, I'm, I'm totally aligned with that. And in, in, in a way, those words are a more poetic uh, way of describing what I call the patterning instinct, which is that if we look at what defines humans or a humans essentially good or bad, or all these sort of um, questions that uh, uh, correct to ask about ourselves. Um, I do believe, just like that quote said, that there's nothing particularly good or bad about human beings um, other than we have a patterning instinct, which means that whatever culture we're raised and we're raised in will define how we make sense of the world of the world and how we act. And so to his point, you know, if we if we live in a monotheistic um, world where um, where we're told the patriarchy is what it's all about, and and we'll we'll think that's our, where our values will come from, and we'll feel good about ourselves doing stuff that another culture might look at and think is horrendous. And similarly, right now, if we are raised in a world where we're told basically the Gordon Gecko quote from decades ago, greed is good, um, and in fact that capitalism is actually just the um, the sort of apex of evolution. Um, of like the, the as the selfish gene coming up to its like maximum capability, and you know um, me pursuing my selfish needs is actually ends up being for the best benefit of everybody, which is what we're told in this kind of neoliberal dominant worldview. Um, then you know I'll feel good about being a, a selfish creep and like doing all this stuff because that's actually. Uh, you know, it, it feels like that's the right thing to do. I, I can know. even speak, I can speak personally from that. I, yeah. I spent years of my, uh, early years of my life as an entre entrepreneur starting a company, um, taking it public. 
it was a credit card company, basically trying to maximize, trying to get people to transfer their balances, pay as much interest and fees as possible and get as much in debt as possible. But I was happy and I, I felt good about myself doing it because within that context, um, at the time I felt I was basically offering um, an easy, easy way for people to get access to the things they wanted um, and you know, save their time and energy. And so I felt I was giving them uh, what they wanted. And it's so easy uh, for us to um, end up feeling good about what we're doing if, our, if we feel it's within our cultural values that are dominant. So what was it that kind of woke you up to use, you know, common terminology? What was it that kind of made you think, yeah. wow, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm not helping with this company? Right. Well, for me, basically, uh, it's as though everything I built around me kind of collapsed. <clears throat> um, I went through really like a, a crucible, uh, sort of melting of, of, of my own sort of structures of meaning. Essentially, um, the, uh, I'd been with um, someone from my uh, w w from when I was 21 years old or whatever, um, who she, she passed away some years back. But after I started this company, took it public, I was CEO, she got very sick um, and I left the company to look after her. The company, it, this is the, the first dot-com era and the company was one of the dot-com casualties. It was too um, on it was too immature basically to really grow on its own. As I left it, it kind of collapsed. And I found myself in this place where, and even my wife at the time uh, was suffering from cognitive decline uh, from her illness. And I felt completely alone and that everything I'd built was crashing around me. So I personally decided that whatever path I was going to go on for the rest of my life, I wanted to be truly meaningful, but I didn't want to just take somebody else's word for it. So I started my own project that went on for years and it was a cognitive like a project of trying to understand where ideas um, came from, whether it was um, God or soul or spirit or human nature, all these things, what do they actually mean? Um, and looking at other cultures to, and looking at cognitive science to get a better sense. And it was also an embodied uh, journey of uh, just develop and um, coming across things like meditation and uh, traditional Chinese uh, practices to really get a different sense of what it was like to be a human being in this world. So it took me a number of years, but it led me to realize that what I, the, the place I had been in, like so many of us was part of this culture that is actually driving our entire civilization at an increasingly rapid rate towards a precipice. So I, I wanna get more into the, how society makes that transformation as well at some point, but I think it'd be really useful at this point to kind of uh, detail the the end game or the alternative, because um, I think a lot of fans of yours and a lot of people who uh, you know follow Singularity, they are interested in building a very beautiful future and one that is more, let's say, harmonious and humanistic. Even if there's a slight difference in how that looks between your view and and maybe people who are more oriented towards Singularity. Um, what does that world of connectedness, what does that other worldview in your mind look like? Well, basically, it looks very different from our current civilization. And in fact, um, a phrase that really comes to life for me is this notion of an ecological civilization, uh, which gives the, the sense that, that civilization itself be structured not according to 
and what our current civilization is structured on, which is exploitation and extraction of value from others around us and other um, non-human resources. But actually, and it would be a civilization built on the principles of life itself, the same principles that have allowed ecosystems to stay healthy and resilient for millions of years. And uh, as we apply that in human society, it would be based basically on principles of setting the conditions for the true flourishing of all humans on a regenerated and sustainable earth, an earth that was vibrant and, and um, alive in itself. So that's the basically the, the, the foundation. And it's one that would absolutely embrace technology, but it, it would embrace technology in a somewhat different way than technology and has its, found its place in our current civilization. And, and essentially that has to do with this notion of the relationship with nature. Oftentimes when we think of technology today, um, it's thought of in terms of how we can control nature, start part of that separation, seeing humans as separate from nature. And then each, um, each development in technology is how do we control it just that little bit more to get what we want from it. And if people are more enlightened, they might want to try to find ways to control nature without causing more harm and try to make it sustainable and all this stuff. But it's very much, that's the basis of it. But imagine what technology might look like if it were based on a life-affirming principle that every new development wasn't asking, how can I control nature better in this way or that way? But how can I actually work with nature in a mutually beneficial way where what I am doing is good for us as human beings as part of nature, but is also actually beneficial, not just sustainable, but actually beneficial and regenerative for the rest of life too. I think asking that question from the outset would lead to a very different uh, trajectory for where we evolve technology. Really to kind of go in the direction you're talking about is to upend capitalism itself in a lot of ways. And that's a big ask. So, so how do we, how do we, you know, make something new that can bring us into that world without creating harm and exploiting the world to make that new thing? And how do we at the same time completely change the paradigm that drives humanity? called capitalism. Right. Yeah, right. Sure. And it is a big ask. Um, it's, it's a huge ask. In fact, it's such a big ask that I think many people don't even want to look at it. Um, it's a little bit like when we were talking about worldviews before and um, or like the fish swimming in water. It's not even where that it's in water because that's all it, it knows. And we're so used to living in capitalism that we don't even want to, you know, no matter how much we want to try to change things, we say, well, that's one thing we can't change. You know, there's that famous quote that has been attributed to Zahav Zizek or other people, that it's easier for most people to envision the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And there's some truth in that, especially with all the different um, apocalyptic movies that are coming out right now or, or that have been out for a while. But, um, but we can't really we're so used to seeing capitalism around us. And so we then tend to avoid even using the, the word. It's like becomes a code word. And well, I don't want to say capitalism because then people will think I'm a socialist or a communist and look what happened to the Soviet Union. So, I mean, don't even go there. And so we're, we're kind of stuck in this place, but it's honestly when this is something I really only came to after 
a number of years of looking at the deeper layers of meaning to realize that capitalism itself is really the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation of this worldview of separation. And it's based on the very foundation of seeing others, other people and other non-humans as resources to exploit because it's about ultimately about optimizing capital. Um, and then, and so needing a continual increase and increase ongoing in the return on investment in that capital. So it's always about pushing out the boundaries, which is now might be the boundaries of, um, you know, what we can develop further in technology or going to the deep oceans or going to space because we're sort of maximizing to some degree what we can do on our, on our normal domain. But it's actually that capitalist engine that is driving us to the precipice, that growth-based society an economy that is actually founded on continual exponential growth on a finite planet um, and uh, companies, uh, for-profit companies that are actually legally bound to increase shareholder profit above all else. And so we, and we're basically dominated by a system that actually sees other people and other and the rest of the living earth as a resource to exploit. We have to recognize that. And that's one of the hardest um, places to go because then we have to really start to imagine something different. And then it's so easy to get dismissed as being too speculative, which comes to basically your question. So how do we get to that place? Well, one of the first things I think is important is to envisage what actually is possible and to realize that a non-capitalist future for humanity, like this ecological civilization, is something that is not only possible, it's actually here right now. There's that wonderful um, quote that um, yeah, the, the future already exists, it's just not very well distributed, right? Um, and all of the different elements of an ecological civilization, commons-based infrastructures or cooperatives or um, uh, things like uh, universal basic income uh, and different ideas that would underlie that already in place, already been tested, already there. They're just very small elements in a, a system that is far more dominated by the global capitalist system. So one thing is to recognize that there is a positive pathway. And a second thing to do, I think, and, th and this is key, for, especially for anyone who's in the technology world or wants to develop their own uh, ways of improving the world is to look at whatever it is that you're developing and say, how can I do it in a way that does not um, then itself get sucked into that capitalist exploitation growth-based system? A simple response to that is to uh, not actually, uh, if you're starting something out, is to not start it out as a for-profit company but to start it out to explore the amazing work being done on the commons in tech, like uh, DAOs, like or, or other uh, incredibly and innovative forms of distributed ownership and distributed power. Um, and look at ways to start off on that basis so that actually as things evolve, as things get to be more powerful, they're actually not necessarily going to get sucked into that capitalist mentality, but maybe quite the opposite, maybe actually um, create a whole space within our system that is different from the system. So rather than having to overturn the capitalist system, what we're able to do is actually create an alternative system from within. 
So you mentioned DAOs there, which I, I believe stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And what's interesting about that, you know, is it could be easy to peg you in some light as kind of like anti-technology as well as anti-capitalist. Um, but it seems like you really embrace the, the potential that technology does present to help bring about some of this change. Absolutely. In fact, um, I, I feel that uh, technology is an incredible um, agent for catalyzing the kind of change that we need. We live in a technological world. The kinds of changes we need are drastic changes that need to happen not over centuries, but over really just a, 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 a few number of years. Maybe we have a few decades and maybe not. Um, but this kind of transformation, it can only happen basically at the speed of technology today. It can happen at the speed of the internet. We've seen in the last few years how something like the murder of George Floyd um, can go viral in, in terms of its the human response around the world in days. We are to some degree becoming a human superorganism. Um, we are developing in many ways like a planetary consciousness through um, not through the results of, through technology enabling that, but through, only through intentionally looking for that. Because as we well know, technology is just as capable of creating separate silos and, uh, and aggression and all of the worst elements of human nature that, um, that we're only too aware of. But uh, so it's not that technology is the answer, but uh, the answer absolutely requires a very intentional, conscious, and wise utilization of the most advanced approaches to technology to get to where we need to go. So you support more of a, the only way out is through rather than, you know, return to the nostalgic past approach, as long as there is a mindful guidance at the root of the, of the technological use. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, a lot of my writing is about the wisdom we can learn from indigenous knowledge that stays, it is still uh, very vibrant around the world, from Buddhism, from Taoism, these great wisdom traditions of the past, and Neo-Confucianism that very few people know about, but I write a lot about because it's so interconnected with systems thought, which I feel is also another way for us to rethink the world as it is today. So a lot of my writing is about looking at the wisdom of the past, but it's never about looking at some golden age. You know, I love um, to write a lot about the great wisdom coming from traditional China. Um, but, and even while that wisdom was arising there, it was one of the most patriarchal um, imperialist um, civilizations we've ever seen in history. There's no desire um, on my part, or should not be on anyone's part to go back to that kind of thing. Um, so definitely the, the way is through, but I think what we need to recognize is we right now are facing really, really, I think it's not too exaggerating to say the greatest existential crisis humanity has ever faced as a species. And when we're facing that kind of crisis, we need to gain all the benefits we can from the uh, accumulated treasure trove of human wisdom from the ages. That means, and um, from today's, uh, today's period, looking at the greatest advances in science and technology and apply that. But it means integrating and incorporating with it the great wisdom from the past, which in many ways is wisdom that leads to this deep understanding of deep interconnectedness. And if there's one thing that those traditions 
and can help us with. And that modern systems thinking and complexity science and others also lead us to is this recognition that that worldview of separation is just plain wrong. That actually we're all deeply, deeply interconnected and with each other and with the past, with the future and with all of non-human life too. And it's only when we start out from that basis that we can develop the right solutions, I think. So it sounds like a lot of what you're supporting here or promoting is kind of a piecemeal, almost cherry-picked uh, version of pulling the best of all the different cultures, of all the different wisdom schools um, together, and, and not taking prepackaged scripts as absolutes that you have to wear as a single mantle, but just acknowledging that all of these different schools of thought have wisdom to offer that we can integrate into something that's useful moving forward. Yes, I think that's well said. And really, that's that's what I try to lay out in this uh, new book, The Web of Meaning, which is subtitled Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And, and it is, um, it's interesting because whenever I hear that word cherry picked, I <laughs> get nervous about it because, of course, um, there's always a real good critique um, that arises when uh, when somebody is looking at somebody doing cherry picking because it's like, well, how do you determine what's the ripe cherry that you like and the one that you don't like? So couldn't anybody <clears throat> look at the past and come up with their own version of integrating uh, science and traditional wisdom that could lead in any kind of direction? And it's that's absolutely right. So, um, for example, uh, Raymond Kurzweil, to, for an example that we and that we know, you know, with his notion of a technological singularity and the notion of um, humans like uploading themselves to the cloud, can turn to Plato and say, well, you know, uh, Plato him, uh, was was the one who had this source of, of dualism and talking about this sense of like the physical body being this kind of polluted. Um, like um, mess and what we really need to do is I upload ourselves basically to a cloud and here we have the technology to do it. So it's possible to do that. So I think what's important then is to ask, well, what are the values that underlie this way in which I've tried to interweave the wisdom from the past? And I think ultimately uh, it's really um, values based on life. One of the core elements throughout this book, The Web of Meaning, and something I only really uncovered for myself as I did the deep um, investigation into all what all this work was saying, and was really perhaps best summarized by the great humanitarian Albert Schweitzer in the 20th century, when he had this great quote, he said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And I think that's a profound basis to look at a value system and say, what are the, what are the things we can incorporate from traditional uh, approaches and from modern science that actually is consistent and aligns with and builds from that foundation? And we find that that's actually, that can be a very powerful way to establish value systems that can truly be regenerative and sustainable rather than ones that might have their own internal contradictions. What do you think then about something like, uh, you know, uploaded consciousness or something that is in a way almost the uh, ultimate expression of connection when 
if in a lot of ways, the maybe the most life affirming principle really is something that resists entropy, something that is orderly, something that creates order. And in a lot of ways, technology is maybe the ultimate order making vehicle. So does that direction hold any value to in in your eyes is it is there a bit of a, a skin bag bias as they say coming from you in the sense of you just don't want to see yourself change into a new thing something new and different or do you think there's just a genuine uh loss something that's very important that we lose when we make that transition that mm -hmm. makes us no longer benefit from the connectivity that it, it offers mm -hmm. yeah i think that's that's a key question and um I do think that it is important to um, look at that distinction between consciousness and life. And, um, you know, I think uh, when we look at many visions of, of these kind of future singularities, um, like I, from, from my money, I think Max Tegmott does a, a really profound job of thinking this through in his book, Life 3.0, where um, he explores these different, you know, how we went from um, sort of just non-thinking animals or whatever to humans as life 2.0 and then um, some form of AI or self-aware consciousness as, as life 3.0. Um, but I, I think where I would disagree with him is really he's right, he's really talking about consciousness 3.0, not life 3.0. Because a lot of what my um, book looks into is the findings in, in systems biology and evolutionary biology of this amazing thing that is life. And I think um, a lot of uh, technologists do a disservice to life by not having a deeper understanding of the incredible self-organized, amazing intelligence of every single living cell um, that exists on this whole earth of which we have whatever 30, 40 trillion um, of them in our own bodies. But even a single cell really displays about as much intelligence is, uh, or more than our greatest supercomputer at this point in terms of the way in which it self-organizes and the way in which it basically develops a sense of intentionality and knows what to do. To me, that is really the greatest miracle um, that we know of in the universe is the formation of life. And this, and I, my point is, is not to say <clears throat> that we should avoid a development of technology to some place that can build on that. But I think it's very dangerous to look at sort of this sense of transcending or surpassing that. Um, I think it's possible <clears throat> to consider a different kind of singularity where <clears throat> we actually can like be sort of merging more with life rather than surpassing or transcending it. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Teilhard de Chardin does a, um, good job of giving a, a sense of what's possible there with his notion of the omega point, which is fundamentally different from that sort of um, consciousness alone singularity in the sense that it looks towards this deeper integration of life. That if we can consider um, all of life uh, as it's evolved on earth for billions of years, this notion of Gaia, like as a, um, as a kind of a self-organized um, sort of almost almost sentient being of its own, of which we are all part. We can consider ourselves as humans to be maybe like sort of Gaia's um, self-awareness or Gaia's uh, self-consciousness arising. And as part of that, we can begin to see ourselves as really part of 
of life on planet Earth. And we could enter into a notion, uh, into a, a potential long-term future of living in symbiosis with the rest of life. Imagine if we could develop technologies where we can feel into what other non-human sentient beings are feeling and living, and where we can actually, um, rather than being like as separate as possible from the rest of life, actually allow life to be some incredibly beautifully distributed, integrated intelligence of which we can be part of. So building on that, there's uh, an idea I've talked about, I think, on this podcast before. I, I used to write science fiction quite heavily, and one of the ideas I loved was this idea of the muse, and it was basically an onboard artificial intelligence that each person had in their in their consciousness and their brain that kind of helped steer them in moments uh, of need. And and as what as you're talking there, I'm thinking about you know the fact that let's say someone's amygdala activates because they're scared, maybe because they're financially low on the totem pole, and they therefore react in a way that's very conservative, very about me. They want to hoard. They want to be very selfish. They grow up with that mentality, and now they become somebody who wants to exploit others and the world. Would you support something like a technology that's integrated with a consciousness that says, hey, let's prevent the amygdala from firing? Is that too much playing God? Do you think that there is something valuable in shoring up some of the things that could be argued uh, to be like evolutionarily maladaptive at this point? Um, I think that's too much playing God um, because one of the, to me, one of the values, the core values that arises from the sense of what life is and actually taking principles from life is this recognition, this notion of integration. Integration being uh, fundamentally about the sense of unity, but with differentiation. And I feel that as long and when we go down the path of what you're just describing, there's always somebody somewhere who is making some determination as to what is the right or what is the wrong thing. And then that, that leads inevitably towards some kind of tyranny of a certain perspective over other perspectives. And I think the glory of life and the glory of what we can do with technology arises from the notion of self-organization. So of setting principles, um, the core principles, but they're not things like um, the amygdala activate, overactivation is bad or this or that, but they're more principles like principles of integration, principles of diversity, principles of um, basically being life affirming. Um, but from those principles, allowing systems to self-organize so that they find their own way to become abundant and rich I think is what is most valuable to do. So I, um, <clears throat> I think that the idea of the, the kind of cyborg uh, potentiality is something that I actually embrace as long as it's not done within the capitalist system. It's not the, it's not the technology <clears throat> that I'm afraid of. Um, it's the capitalist system that I'm afraid of that does just as we've seen with the internet in the rise of Facebook or whatever, um, will take the most wonderful uh, approaches that can lead to distributed intelligence and connection and connectivity and turn it into just another machine for profit maximization and dominating people's hormones through 
um, all the different techniques that we, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows about only too well. And so um, it's capitalism that would be so dangerous if, for example, <clears throat> um, we were moving along a path, which I think is very reasonable within a few decades, <clears throat> where, where, you know, through neural implants, we were able to <clears throat> start to like feel uh, um, others, other people's sentience and, and feel into what they're feeling and <clears throat> essentially create like an internet, not just of words and visuals, but an internet of feeling tones or whatever. Um, that to me is a wonderful, um, incredibly exciting potential development, but, um, but even more terrifying when we think of a capitalist uh, system exploiting that and turning basically everyone into essentially uh, just automatons for profit maximization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Setting aside the, the capitalistic aspect for just a moment, um, do you think there is a potential interface issue that takes place here in the sense that you mentioned earlier Taoism, which I'm quite uh, quite a fan of. And, you know, when I think of Taoism, I think of something that's, you know, it doesn't force, it doesn't resist, it's very natural and flowing. And yet technology as it stands right now is very binary. It's a zero or one. There isn't, it, it, it is kind of forced. It, it kind of has to be one or the other. There isn't room until quantum computing really comes along to be anything but forced. So do you think we're, do you think that's part of the issue maybe we're finding here is that you can only like or not like something, you know, in, in a world and there's not a lot of room for just this more Taoist flow? Mm. Well, I think what you've done in, in raising that is really almost like set the framework for the kind of uh, technology development that is possible and the, the challenge that really needs to be taken up by people at the leading edge of this kind of, uh, of path you're talking about. And if, if we look at the early Taoists, and this is actually how I begin my book, The Web of Meaning, and they make the distinction, just as you're saying, between what they call Wu Wei and Yu Wei. And Wu Wei is what we associate with Taoism, the sense of like, and um, it can be translated as like effortless action. And um, it's just going with the flow. And the Taoists saw all non-humans as acting in uh, Wu Wei naturally. That was their dirt. That was their like, um, their kind of intrinsic nature. And humans, they saw, acted with what they called Yue, which is like a purposive um, approach. So rather than um, non-purposive action, it was like, it was like doing things like in their words, like using a pump to pump water up a hill or using a fire to dry up a well, going against nature, which of course is technology. It says exactly what technology does is do something that is not in that wu-wei space. And so if you think about it though, we have been acting in wu-wei as humans ever since we first learned how to harness fire, ever since we um, used an animal's fur um, to keep us warm. I mean, these are all technologies, the first bow and arrow. Um, and in all, in all of these cases, um, what, what we have the capability to do is rather than see this Yu Wei and Wu Wei as being um, enemies, basically, and antagonistic, is develop a way to integrate the Yu Wei with the Wu Wei. So we can develop a way of humans being part of the living earth in a truly mutually symbiotic and mutually beneficial way. 
So this is why what I kind of call for in this book, The Web of Meaning, is what I call an integrative consciousness. Um, I make the distinction, just like the Taoists made with Yu Wei and Wu Wei, of what I call a concept. As humans, we have a conceptual consciousness and an animate consciousness. And the animate consciousness is what we share basically at the deepest level with all of life, with every cell and with, uh, with other animals. It's this consciousness that our own bodies have um, that is deeply meaningful. And for those uh, of us um, who have done things like say, traditional Chinese practices of Qigong or whatever, you can actually feel into that deep animate consciousness. And there's many other ways to do that. And then we have that conceptual consciousness that develops language, uh, technology, and uh, sees human and sees ourselves as separate from the earth in one way or other. My uh, sense is that we can develop an integrative consciousness where we can use that conceptual consciousness um, to then turn towards that animate consciousness, both within ourselves and with all of life, and say, how can we truly create something integrated? How can we um, really be part of the living earth in a way that benefits the earth as well as ourselves? Yeah, and in terms of bringing that into something that is, I guess, actionable or uh, you know, some form of praxis, what what are some of the main steps or things that you think need to happen really right now to start bringing us closer towards the worldview that you um, so adamantly are fighting for? Well, I think the first thing <clears throat> that anybody needs to do is to look at what's going on in the world right now to really, really look and recognize that the path our civilization is driving us toward is this path of a destruction, that the, the deep unsustainability of our system as it is right now. And that can in itself be a hard thing to do because it leads you to have to ask questions about what you're doing yourself or um, uh, what is the right path to take, et cetera. But I think that that's the most important thing is to really deeply recognize that. But having deeply recognized that, it's quite easy for people um, to get caught in a cynical response to that. Like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, we're all going to shit. And so I might as well just look after myself or we'll do what we can, but it's not. And, and that's, that can lead to a sort of a bypass of what's actually going on. So I think a second thing that's critically important is to uh, realize, is to open up to the incredible <clears throat> possibilities that actually do exist for a true flourishing future over the long term for humanity and for the earth. But to realize that that future only takes place once we recognize that we've got to change the deep and things at the deeper layers, not just invest in a better technology or not just change one part of the economic system, but actually shift at the deep layer, move towards deep transformation. And that can be an individual path in terms of like uh, connecting with the animate consciousness, the animate intelligence within ourselves. And through that, realizing that, that sense of how each of us really truly is part of life. That can be community transformation of actually uh, working with community around us rather than trying to um, get the, make the most exploit others around us in the way that our society tells us to do. And I think just as importantly, it involves in getting involved in system transformation, uh, realizing that even the, the uh, 
each of us who really becomes awake to that has to look at those deeper systemic layers and has to get in, engaged in some of the political processes that are required to really allow this, uh, this shift to happen. And and would you suggest something that is more, I guess, let's say, well, I, I guess my question is, do you think there's a danger of idealism here um, where is it better to say, let's burn down capitalism or is it better to say, let's, you know, lessen the discrepancy between the haves and the have nots? Like, is it better to maybe say, let's keep capitalism for now and make it so that somebody can't have $20 billion to somebody else's 10,000 mm -hmm. than just saying, let's burn it down and build yeah. something new? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great, great question to ask. And I think the best way I have seen to try to come at that, at that question is actually and through a model that was actually first developed by McKinsey, but has been used a lot by um, people looking at societal transformation. And it's called the three horizons model of change. And it's kind of a simple um, model, but basically it's like um, the, the, the three horizons are like this. The, the, the first horizon is basically what's right in front of you. So if you imagine if you're going on a, a walk through this uncharted territory, you need to like look at each step that you're taking. Otherwise, if you just look out at, at the horizon out there, you're gonna trip over. So it's really important what is right in front of you and, and how you're gonna navigate this creek as you're coming closer to it, all that stuff. That's first horizon. The second horizon basically is like, if you look out to the distance and you can see those mountains out yonder and you kind of say, that's, that's really exciting. I wanna to get to there. That's gonna be a different place I can get to. It's like kind of transformative, but it's still within the overall system we're in right now. And then third horizon thinking is like, you can't even see it, um, but it's, you can imagine what's actually possible. And it's actually way beyond even that, even those mountains in the distance. Now, the thing about these three horizons is that each one is important in themselves. So a lot of time people in the change making uh, area domain, get spend a waste a lot of energy saying what that person's doing is too incremental what that person's doing is too visionary and idealistic but what we need to realize is that each of those three horizons is valid so an example of a first horizon thinking is so like you're saying if we can develop a technology that makes um renewable energy more efficient that's great um if we can uh, develop uh, if we can increase taxes on fossil fuel companies or uh, get the, these ridiculous subsidies to get stopped. That's great. That's first horizon. That's right there in front of us. We've got to do it. Nothing wrong with that. Second horizon thinking would be something like um, sort of what Elon Musk did with a Tesla. Like he totally um, disrupted an entire industry by having this great vision saying, I can do this. We're going to do it. Um, that second horizon, because it's way beyond what we're doing day to day, but it's still within the context of global capitalism. It's the white male hero coming to save us and, and making becoming a, one of the wealthiest men or the wealthiest men in the world uh, at the same time. And it's a, it's a corporate exploitative system, um, mining minerals and um, making tons of money at, at the expense of, uh, of the whole living earth in order to do that. Much better than fossil fuel, but still within that. Third horizon is this notion of like an ecological civilization, which um, might be things people are doing right now. If we're developing, for example, and um, if, if somebody can look at 
what's being done on electric vehicles and develop like a fab lab version of that. So it can be distributed and, and part of the commons and downloadable in any little town anywhere in the world where somebody can set up um, essentially their own distributed um, electric vehicle uh, uh, factory. Um, so for maybe just a few hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars, or whatever, people in their area can actually uh, drive an electric vehicle. That's a, a notion of a third horizon way of looking at the same issue. My point is that they're all important. Uh, and, and there are so many people working as they should on those first horizon shifts that are needed. But what's dangerous is if those first horizon shifts lead us away from the second horizon, or if those second horizon uh, glories of something like the Tesla lead us away from the third horizon. So you can imagine that on this journey in the wilderness, if you don't have the third horizon somewhere in your mind as to where you wanna go, you can go totally in the wrong direction, think you're going in the right direction, but actually you're leading towards the precipice rather than where we really need to go. Yeah, well said, I love that metaphor. Jeremy, I know we're coming up on time here and I want to respect yours, um, but I do want to give you a chance to tell us anything that you want, something you're working on, if you want to tell us more about your work, any ideas that have been top of mind lately, anything at all. Oh, sure. Thanks. Well, yeah, actually, um, what is top of my mind right now is um, a network that I'm planning to initiate uh, um, in the next few months called the Deep Transformation Network. It's a, an online network that'll be using the Mighty Networks platform. And um, what I've discovered in the last few months and last few, um, couple of years, I guess, is so many people who look at what I'm writing about and really get excited about it saying, like, how can we create this network together? So we're actually uh, really driving these changes that are needed in a way that we can feel part of a community. And um, because people oftentimes will feel quite isolated and in a particular place they are. Maybe there's part of their minds are in that third horizon, but everyone around them is looking at the first horizon and they, and they just feel like I, I'm isolated in that. So the idea of this deep transformation community will be for people to basically um, just uh, join a little bit like a, a Facebook community, but rather than having the big corporation determining what each of us should see in order to maximize their advertising dollars, actually allowing people self-organize into hubs um, live conversations, um, and basically create a global network of deep transformation that we actually need. So it hasn't even begun yet, plan, uh, plan to begin it in February of this year, but I, I think it's a, there's a potential there for the kind of self-organized change that we really need at this moment. Is there anywhere people can sign up to keep informed on that? Um, well, the, yes, the best thing to do is to sign up to my newsletter, which um, you can just go to my website, jeremylentz.com, and an annoying little pop-up will, <laughs> will invite you to do that after about 10 seconds. Um, and uh, then once this has launched and has begun to uh, take its feet over the next couple of months, I'll be sending out an invitation to everybody on that newsletter and elsewhere to um, sign up to it. So that's probably the best way to keep in touch. Beautiful. Jeremy, uh, I want to thank you so much for your well-articulated wisdom. This was this was a lot of good information and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great talking with you, Stephen. Uh, thanks for your great questions.